thing. Ten. What we've seen so far is the tribulation period in which God is bringing down judgments upon the planet because he's about to establish his kingdom. And there are three sets of judgments, seven in each set. And the first set were sealed. We saw a scroll which is represented with the title deed of the kingdom of earth. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy enough to take it. And he takes it and he starts opening it. And he goes through the first six seals and we see the judgments come down upon the earth. Now again, the judgments are to purge the earth for the coming king, to bring men to repentance, miraculous things happening in a naturalistic system, and to judge man for their evil and their wickedness, like God promised he would do. One, two, three, four, five, six seals. And then if you remember, he stops and he gives us what's called a parenthesis. He says, you're probably asking at this time, what about the church and what about the Jews? Well, let me tell you. Before he opens that first seal, 144,000 Jewish people receive the Holy Spirit and are sealed, and they will evangelize the planet because the tribulation period is primarily for the Jewish nation who rejected Jesus on the first round but will now accept him so the kingdom can come in. The second thing we saw was a multitude standing before the throne, and I believe that that was the rapture. And so what God is saying, John, okay, here's the Jewish people. I haven't forgotten my covenants and my promises. I'm taking care of them. And here's the church. I haven't forgotten my promises for them. And then he says, all right, now let's go back to where we left off. And the seventh seal is opened up. And when the seventh seal opens up, you've got seven angels that come out, and they all have trumpets. And then we see each angel, one by one, blow their trumpets. And as they blow their trumpet, judgments come down upon the earth. And so we looked at, last week and the week before, the first six trumpets. And then in chapter 10, we're going to see the same thing. Now, if you look at 9, uh, 13, it says, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and we saw all these events. In chapter 10, you would expect for the seventh trumpet to be sounded, but we don't see it. Instead, we have another parenthesis. That's why, again, it's so difficult to understand the book of Revelation. One through six or seven, chronologically, it flows, no problem. And then you've got that parenthesis, and you don't know where it goes, but now you do. You've got one, two, three, four, five, six trumpets, and now you've got these two events a giant angel standing on the land and the sea holding another little scroll, and then you see all of a sudden these two witnesses pop up who can do miracles. You're going, now wait a minute, where do these go? I know where the first two parentheses, or the first two events of the first parentheses goes, but I don't know where this one goes. And you're going to see three parentheses in this seven-year period. This is the second one. I don't know. How's that? I don't know where it goes. This could be him again going back to the beginning and saying, whoops, I forgot a couple of other things that happened. Let me back up and tell you. Or it could be that he's saying, well, these two events are going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period. Because a lot of people believe the first four seals happen in the first three and a half years of the seven-year period. And then the trumpets and the bowls, well, on your side it'd be first three and a half years, and the trumpets and the bowl judgments are on the latter half because the tribulation period, seven years, is divided up by three and a half and three and a half. In the middle, there's a lot of significant events that happen, and we'll get into it. In Daniel, we saw that the Antichrist goes into the Jewish temple that's rebuilt, and he, uh, somebody's coat came out. And his, uh, 
he goes in he proclaims himself to be god now that's real significant and we're going to look at something in chapter 11 in reference to the events that are happening there right now i mean we're seeing it in the news big time okay so where these happen i don't know it could be either at the th at the three and a half year mark in the middle or again it could go all the way back the scholars are divided on it but let's look at the events and try to interpret what they mean 10.1, he says, then I saw another, and that word in the Greek is alos, not heteros. Heteros means one of a different kind, like heterosexual. This is alos, one of the same kind, meaning that the angels that we saw blowing a trumpet, you've got the same kind of angel. That's important because a lot of people will try to interpret this vision as Christ. It is not Christ. It's another angel of the same kind of the ones we've seen. It says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, uh, and he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. Well, you've got it coming down from a cloud, which is judgment. Uh, clouds bring water, floods. It's the same kind of idea when we saw thunder and lightning and hail and so forth. Judgment's coming. But after judgment, what always follows? In the Old Testament, blessing, mercy. And we saw judgment in Noah's day, and after judgment, what followed? What did God put in the sky to show that he would never flood the earth like that again? A rainbow. And so we've got the same thing here. You've got a cloud, which is judgment, but you've got a rainbow, which shows mercy. And then it says his face was like the sun. Uh, the sun warms the earth. It brings forth life. Nothing could exist without it shows that God, again, is the author of life, that he brings judgment and he brings mercy. It says that the, the hearts of the kings are in the Lord's hand and he directs them like he does the streams of the river. He raises up kings, he disposes them. He sustains all things by the power of his word. And he is providential. Okay? Another reason this couldn't be Christ, and I'll just kind of throw these out at you, is he's coming down. That would mean you'd have two comings of Christ in the tribulation period, and you can't have that. Also, after the Old Testament, you don't ever see Christ referred to as the angel of the Lord. He's always the king of kings, lords of lords, the lamb that looked as if he'd been slain, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the rose of Sharon. I mean, you go on. But never the angel of the Lord, only in the Old Testament. Okay? So it says in verse, uh, well, and his legs were like pillory fires. Or, yeah, you know what I mean. Fiery pillars. I'll get it right. The legs are the strength of a man. They're fiery because it's judgment. And the legs are coming down on the earth. Meaning judgment's coming down. He was holding a little scroll which lay upon his hand. And he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, which shows complete dominion over the entire planet. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voice of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now we have no idea what these seven thunders are. Some scholars say it's a reference back to Psalm 29. So let's take a look at it. 
That's the best we've got. Obviously, it's more judgments that come down upon the earth. In Psalm 29, we're going to see the voice of the Lord pronounced seven times, and we'll see judgment come down upon the nation Israel because of their disobedience. Look at Psalm 29. This is a psalm from David, and it shows God's great power in nature. That he is in control of all things. And basically what he's going to do is he's going to go from the north part of that region all the way up from Hebron, Lebanon, and bring it all the way down to the Dead Sea. And it's going to show God's control over that entire area. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, Almighty Ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord and the splendor of his holiness. Now, verses 3 and following are going to explain to us why he deserves holiness and why we should worship him. It's because he's the creator of all things, he controls all things, and he can do all things. Watch what you see seven times. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic, like a trumpet. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, and the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. That's north. Now watch, he's going to come down. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. Okay? The cedars of Lebanon are the strongest thing in nature. It's like the big redwoods out in California. And he snaps them, it says. It says he makes Lebanon skip like a calf. That's the mountains, and it looks like they're just skipping. Like, say, if there's a big windstorm across the waters, it looks like the, the mountains are skipping. Or literally, if he wanted to, he could uproot the mountains and cause them to skip. Book of Revelation, we're going to see him flatten the mountains, and every island is going to flee from its place. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. He's coming down south now. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea which is where the Israelites first camped on their first attempt to go into the land, Numbers 13. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. Ever seen a tornado twist, twist oak trees or take a two-by-four and shove it through a tree? The Lord sits enthroned above the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Okay? Let's go back to Revelation. Some scholars say that it's just simply meaning God's voice is like the voice of the seven thunders back in Psalms, meaning that he is controlling these judgments. This angel is who God brings down his judgments through, that the angels are agents of God's wrath. And it's complete, it's over the entire planet, but God is in control. And with that judgment, what follows? Mercy. And again, it's like Jesus reckoning it to a woman's birth pains. They're intense, they're far apart at first, and right before birth, they pick up speed and intensity, and then boom, you've got great pleasure. And ladies, when that baby comes out, you have forgotten all the misery and all the pain that you just went through, right? Unless you've got an epidural. <laughs> There's a girl back there going, no. <laughs> I'm still screaming at my husband, you did this to me! All right. Now it says, verse 5, And the angel I had seen standing unseen on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, that's God who created the heavens and the earth, 
and all that's in them, the earth and all that's in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there'll be no more delay. It's about to hit the fan, he says. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Now, what is the mystery he's speaking of here? A mystery is something that was not previously revealed in the Old Testament, but has now been made known. And I believe the mystery he's speaking of is the second coming of Christ, the parousia, the physical coming of Christ that's going to be visible in the West like lightning that strikes in the East. And all those on the earth will mourn because they have pierced him. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, and the prophets continually prophesied of the coming of Christ. He came the first time, okay, and they expected him to set up the kingdom because they kept asking him, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus, are you going to set up your kingdom at this time? He says, no. Jews rejected. But I'm coming back, and I'm building a room in the Father's mansion. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you, but I'm coming back. And that's what Paul says in First Thess. That's our hope. But see, in the Old Testament, they didn't see a first and second coming. It'd be like if you were standing up on a mountain and you were looking down a mountain range, and you saw the first coming of Christ, and it was just a mountain. And there was a valley, and there was another mountain behind it. You wouldn't see that valley. In other words, you wouldn't see a first and second coming. You'd just see the first. And so when they prophesied of the coming of Christ, they prophesied him coming and setting up his kingdom and destroying the wicked. But aren't you glad that valley is in there? Because if that valley wasn't in there, you and I wouldn't be in here. And we wouldn't be in heaven. Okay? Paul says that God's patience and his long-suffering means salvation to the lost, primarily to the Gentiles right now. <clears throat> Verse 8, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. He says, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So he went and took it, gave him the little scroll, said to me, Take it, eat it, and I will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, language, and kings. What's he mean by that? That's kind of funky. Why would you eat this scroll? There's somebody else in the Old Testament that was told to eat a scroll. Anybody remember? Ezekiel. And you notice it's sweet in his mouth, and then it turns sour in his stomach. That means to the believer... These judgments are sweet because it means Jesus Christ is coming and when he sets up his kingdom, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no more crack babies being born, there's no more murders and rapes and child abuse. I mean, go down the list. I mean, that's joyous to us. At the end of the book, John says, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I want him to come right now while I'm preaching. Let's go. That'd be great. Even though, you know, I haven't seen my boy grow. It doesn't matter. Come on. Because there's so much suffering in this world. There's so much evil. And so to us, the judgments, we see them coming. It's sweet. When we see the signs of this book of Revelation unfolding, we see it's sweet because he's coming. But to the unbeliever, what is it? It's sour. It's painful. And that's the idea. Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and spreads through us everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. 
He says, to the one we are the smell of death, to the other we are the fragrance of life. Meaning when we preach Jesus, to those who believe, it's a sweet smell, but to those who don't, it's the fragrance of death. It's the smell of death. That's the idea. Okay? And in verse 11, that's a strange verse. He says, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Okay? Things that are still future that are about to happen. It's hitting the fan. Judgments are coming, but it's not complete yet. Now, this second thing that happens or that he sees in this parentheses and again, we don't know the timetable on this. There's going to be two fellows that pop up. These are the two witnesses. Don't know who they are. Know who one of them is for sure, I think. Can take a guess at the second one. What I want to do is I want to look at their duty, what they do. Let's look at their attitude. Let's try to figure out their identity. And look at the power that they have. They die. We'll look at this resurrection. Then we're going to look at the impact that they're going to have. 11.1. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. Now, if this is happening during the tribulation period, what must be built? Obviously, the temple. Now, you've had... How many temples have we had? Three temples, I think. No, four temples. This will be the fifth, the sixth. We've had Solomon's temple, and it was destroyed. Then we had Zerubbabel's temple, and it was destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes. Then we had Herod's temple, and that was destroyed. And we'll have a tribulation temple. And that will be destroyed and desecrated. That's four. And then we will have a temple in the millennial period. That's five. And so right now, the temple is destroyed. If you look at the news clips right now, all you see is this gold dome sitting up on top of this place and this huge rock wall with a lot of Jews standing there doing this and chanting to God and putting little prayers in the cracks. I've been there. And they've got their little phylacteries on their foreheads and on their wrists. And you've got possession of that thing or that one particular spot by the Islamis, the descendants of Ishmael. And the Jews need that spot to set up their temple. Now, we know the temple is going to be rebuilt because it says it's going to be rebuilt right here. The Jewish people have everything, everything, all the implements, the harps, the lavers, the meat forks, the ashes of the red heifer that purify the priest, all the priestly garments, all the lyres, the musical instruments, all the Levitical garments. They've got everything they need. The altars, the menorah, the table of showbread. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. And they don't have that place where they believe that the Ark of the Covenant rested and the Holy of Holies was around that. That's where that gold dome is. And that's why they're doing this. That's why they're in war right now because some guy got up there and basically desecrated it, did something he wasn't supposed to, so they're at it again. But there, here it says it will, be, it will be rebuilt. Now, he's told to go measure it because that shows or it signifies ownership. It's marking it off, marking off one's own possession. Okay? But look at what he tells him not to measure, and this is interesting. 
Verse 2, but exclude the outer court and do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, why does he tell them not to measure the outer court? Something interesting is developing out in Israel as we speak. There is a man, his name is Asher Kaufman. He's a Jewish man. And through all this technology we have, of satellites being able to do, uh, what do they call it, infrared imagery. They have found, because this is the third temple, remember, that they have found that the temple that sits there now is not, especially the wall, lined up with the original temple. And that's really important because we don't know exactly where the Holy of Holies room was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. The Old Testament says the only hint we've got of it is that it lines up with the eastern gate. Well, what they're finding out is the eastern gate where it's built right now is not where the original eastern gate was. Because again, what they'll do is when they destroy it, lay it to rubble, they just build on top of it. This Asher Kaufman has discovered this. <clears throat> if he can convince the Jewish leadership that where that gold dome is, is not the original place where the Ark of the Covenant rested, that it's actually a little northwest underneath the Dome of the Spirits, because that lines up with the original Eastern Gate. If he can convince the leadership of that, guess what? They can build their Holy of Holies, then you'll have the Holy Room where the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the menorah is. Then you'll have the outer court, and then you'll have the court of the Gentiles. <clears throat> Guess where that gold dome will rest? In the court of the Gentiles. And what more perfect picture of peace can you have than the Jewish temple being built and resting up on that rock and the monument to Muhammad side by side in peace and the nation wars no longer? Because there's no way they're going to let them destroy that. <clears throat> there's no way that those Islamis, those Palestinians, are going to let the Jewish people take out that gold dome. That's sacred. They believe that Muhammad, they believe that Ishmael's son, Muhammad, rode into Jerusalem on a white horse and ascended physically off that very spot. And they're not going to give it up. But this guy is saying, hey, that's not, that's not where it is anyway. It's over here. Now look at the prophecy. The prophecy says don't measure the outer court because it will be given to the Gentiles. They will trample on it. That's what that means. Now, he gives a time period, 42 months. That's three and a half years. I personally think that this event, these witnesses, happened in the last half of the tribulation period. My personal opinion. Some say at the beginning. And I'll go back and forth. It could be at the beginning. They start it. It's, it's a peace because the uh, Antichrist comes and brings peace between these warring nations. And then in the middle of it, the Antichrist comes in. I don't know. I could go either way. One day I'll say, well, it's the first three and a half. You catch me on a different day, I'll say it's the latter. But it doesn't matter. Now watch this. We're going to look at the, the duty of these witnesses. It says it's going to be trampled on and so forth. And in verse 3 he says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for three and a half years, 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Uh, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. 
Now, are these actually lampstands and olive trees that are walking around and everybody's freaking out? No. That's symbolic language. A king or prophet would wear sackcloth as a symbol of great mourning and distress. Okay? Hezekiah, when there's a famine in the land and the ladies are eating their own babies, he rents his clothes, he tears them over his heart to show his heart is ripped, and he sits on the ground, puts on sackcloth, and puts dust over his head. Okay? It's to show that there's great distress. That word witness in the Greek is martyr, martyrs. That's what these two guys are going to do. They're going to basically die. Okay? The Old Testament, it always says that everything has to be established by how many witnesses? Two. What are the purposes? What's the duty of these witnesses? Well, they are to prophesy or they are to witness and prophesy for 42 months. What are they witnessing? They're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are expressing how a man gets to heaven, and primarily it's to the Jews. Okay? The meaning of the olive trees is that they're Jews. Because the national symbol for Israel is the dove with the olive tree in its mouth to show that Israel is to be the light of the world. They used olive oil to light the lamps. And the lamp stands, again, significant of light. The menorah was uh, Israel's symbol that they were to be the light of the world. So these two men are Jewish. We know that. And their purpose is to witness, to prophesy, telling of future events, and to bring the planet to the knowledge of Christ. Now, anytime that you see someone speaking from God in the Old Testament, God accreditates them with miracles, signs, and wonders. He accreditates the, the messengers. And the message, see also Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. See also Elijah and Elisha to the kings of Israel and Judah. See also the apostles and Jesus establishing the church. And now, the coming of the kingdom, these two will be accredited by miracles, signs, and wonders. Watch. It says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Now, I don't think that these are fire-breathing people. In the Old Testament, you had Elijah, and Ahab wanted to get him. And he sent a command, he sent the battalion of 50 troops to go get him. And uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven and crispy critters. He burned them up. Then another battalion came. He called on fire from heaven, burned him up. The third one came, and the guy got on his knees and said, Whoa, time out. Don't do it to us. Just come on. And God told him to go with him. Okay, that's what I think it means. That fire comes down from heaven. We saw it in Luke 9, when John and James came out of Bethsaida. These guys are the sons of thunder, you know? And they said to Jesus, Hey, these guys rejected us. You want us to call down fire and burn them up? Jesus says, no, chill out. You know, you don't need to do that. So I think that that's the idea. Fire comes down from heaven, destroys them. But watch this. Verse 6, these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. That's sim similar to Moses and Aaron. And again, that God is crediting them with miracle signs and wonders. God is speaking to you. How do we know? 
Look at these miracle signs and wonders. Okay, I believe. But watch what happens to them. Now, again, this is a time in the Earth's period or history. I shouldn't call it history. This is a time period on our planet where you're going to have a unified economic system. You're going to have a unified religious system and political system, and church and state are going to be united. It's going to seem like this great nirvana is about to happen. And now all of a sudden, these guys are going to come on the scene, and they're going to start wreaking havoc. Now watch what happens. Verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them. That is the political antichrist. We'll get into that next week. And he will overpower and kill them. Now remember, it says anybody who comes up to him will be destroyed. This guy can kill him. Now CNN is going to be reporting on these guys, and they are virtually indestructible. And they're calling down fire, they're causing drought, they're wreaking havoc on the earth. Now, what do you think the earth is going to think of these people? Who do you think the earth is going to think these people are from? The devil, because they're causing such pain and turmoil on the earth. Now, all of a sudden, one guy stands up and he can kill him. Now, what do you think the world is going to think of this one guy? They're going to hail him as a worldwide hero. See how it's all set up? And boy, let me tell you something, the way things are moving, it's all moving in this direction. Now watch, it says, their body will lie in the streets of the great city. Well, anyway, uh, when they finish the testimony, he will come up from the abyss, attack them, and overpower and kill them. And again, I'll show you who it is that comes up from the abyss. Verse 8, it says, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Now, it's interesting it uses the word Sodom in Egypt because what happened in those cities? You saw great immorality in Egypt, bondage. And it's significant that Israel, Jerusalem, is in immorality and infidelity to their God, and also they're like Sodom. Okay? So they lie in the streets for three days. Now, that is a great indignity. To a man, you would be buried. Even now, look how they bury their dead out there. You see them on the news. They, they have them up. They got them all wrapped up. They bury them. But they say, these guys wreak such havoc, we're just going to let them rot in the streets. Watch this. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Question. How can everybody in the world gaze upon these men at the same time? And later it's going to say they exchange gifts. They gloat. Because these guys had wreaked such havoc on the earth, and now everybody's rejoicing. Fifty years ago, could the whole world look upon these men at the same time? No way. Can they now? Yes, they can. And that's what I'm saying. Technologically, everything can happen in this book. It says they sent each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Now, I'd love to see that on the newsreels. CNN on the scene. And all of a sudden, these guys who are stinking and flies are buzzing around them after three and a half days, boom, a breath of God enters and they come to their feet. Now watch this. You don't see dead people coming up too often. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. It's like this. And then it says there's a huge earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. They came to faith. Okay? 
says the second woe has passed and the third woe is coming soon. And with the third woe, we will see the second coming of Christ. But next week, what we're going to look at is he's going to say, time out. Let me back up and I'm going to show you a synthesis of every character that has a part in this book. The dragon, which is Satan. The woman, Israel. The beast that comes out of the abyss, which is the political antichrist. The beast that comes out of the earth, which is the religious antichrist. He's going to bring in the 144,000 again, and the angels, the lamb. So he's going to take the time, and he's going to show you all these characters and give you a brief history on them. And then after that, we're going to go into the final judgments and then the second coming of Christ. Okay? All right, we'll stop there. If you've got any questions.